0: Welcome to A Certain Age, a show for women who are unafraid to age out loud. Getting to midlife often means recalibrating or reconsidering our relationships, our romantic relationships, our relationships with friends, family, our relationship with ourselves. My guest today is the author Priscilla Gilman, who writes with uncommon beauty and insight about her relationship with her father and her latest memoir, The Critic's Daughter. Growing up on the Upper West Side of New York City in the 1970s, in a home filled with dazzling literary and artistic characters, Priscilla worshipped her brilliant, adoring, and mercurial father, the writer, theater critic, and Yale School of Drama professor Richard Gilman. When Priscilla was 10, her mother, the renowned literary agent Liz Nesbitt, abruptly announced she was ending the marriage. In The Critic's Daughter, Priscilla captures an incandescent form her exploration and evolving understanding of her parents' double lives, the impact of divorce, loss, grief, forgiveness, and the struggle to reconcile love with the challenges of living with an exquisitely complex parent. Welcome, Priscilla. Thank you so much! What a beautiful introduction. Uh, well, some of it came from your <laughs> the flap of your book, um, but I you did
1: your own spin on it though. You really did. I, I was did. listening, and I was like, "Wow, I, I love this." I you did. Could have a career writing flop copy. Oh wow. my
0: gosh! Well, incandescent <laughs> was my word because that's how I felt. Like this yeah. book um, was just lit up and glowed with so many wonderful components. I just you know the. That your writing is is stunning, and you Thank surface you. Other, your father's own writing throughout the book, and yeah. the writing of others. And it really was such a pleasure to read. It also made me nostalgic for a slice <laughs> of New York that you know, because New York is almost a secondary
1: character in the book. You know, um, oh, Katie, it is, you it know. is. Doing that research was so much fun. And wow. It, you know, the stores, the restaurants, the the
0: fashion, everything, everything. And it's, you know, New York, like everything evolves, changes and sort of morphs. But I would love to just sort of open by asking you, you know, to share with our listeners, why did you decide to write about your relationship with your father, and and really grapple with his legacy to you?
1: Yeah, so my first book, The Anti-Romantic Child, which is about parenting my older son, who is autistic. My father was a kind of, I I guess I would say an incandescent character in that book, in the sense that I did about four to five pages on the kind of magical, incredibly loving, playful, creative father that he was and how it gave me all these ideals about what it was going to be like to have my own children as a result of being parented by him. And readers really responded to my portrait of him and they wanted to know more. And so I think writing that book sort of teed me up to do this book where I delved more deeply into my relationship with my father. But I also think, Katie, you know, for this podcast in particular, I'll say that I think we all at a certain point have to reckon with the legacy of our parents and... How, especially as I was getting into my 40s and my later 40s, I felt like I had never really fully grieved the loss of my father, who died when I was in my mid-30s and was very sick from my late 20s on. And I felt like if I was really going to grow and evolve and age um, with the greatest amount of wisdom and grace, I needed to look back at that most central relationship with my very complicated father and grieve my father and come to terms with his meaning for me.
0: Um Priscilla you you say at some point in the book quote you know my father insisted that the highest form of love demands rigorous honesty and you're you're talking there and he's talking there about his professional work you know he's a critic of theater books culture you know but you wrote this book as a daughter and i'm i'm curious about how you straddle the gap between taking this honest unflinching look at somebody so central in your life and yet preserving the tenderness that you so clearly feel for him on every page of this book.
1: Oh, I'm so glad that you felt it because I felt it too. I really did channel the best of my father. And you're right that he was writing about being a critic. And he says, uh, he quotes George Bernard Shaw, loyalty in a critic is corruption. And I use that mantra Um, I I, I say that I want to be loyal, but I also want to be honest. And how can I be both loyal and honest to him and to my mother? My parents had a very bitter split. How am I going to celebrate my father without in some way um, criticizing my mother? And I really did feel and I do feel that the highest form of love is being able to see people in the round, in all their complexity, in all their complicated and flawed humanity and love them for all of us. And that's really what I was trying to do with this picture of my father. And,
0: and define for me, you know, honesty, too, because, you know, we you're bringing from it your, ex, you know, your experience, your perspective. There are other uh, people who share the story with you, like your mother, as you, you referenced. Um, you have um, siblings that mm-hmm. that appear in the book. You know, how, um, you know. We, we, we you're bringing your own honest opinion. I mean, tell me a little bit more about this notion of honesty and how you grappled with it in this story.
1: Yeah, you know, it's, it's honest in the sense that it's how I perceived and experienced things on the one hand, absolutely. And I was really careful when I was talking about how the children, I have a brother from my father's first marriage and my sister, who went to school with your sister, <laughs> uh, who is 14 months younger than I am. Your amazing, wonderful sister, Jenny. Um, And I I was very careful not to attribute uh, opinions or perspectives to the kids as a unit, right, without checking with them. I did a lot of checking in, talking to my brother and my sister in email on the phone. You know, was it like this? Did we really think that they would never split up? Did you feel the same way that I did? So whenever I said anything that was about the children as a group, that had been checked and vetted with them. I do think that the facts, as I present them, are honest. And I was very careful about that. Uh, I didn't say anything that anyone said or did that didn't actually happen, uh, you know, and, and I think it, that might sound strange. You're writing memoir, of course it should be true, but a lot of times that isn't true. Um, people embroider, they, they change things around. It was very, very important to me. I mean, I double and triple check dates when the movie was playing on the Upper West Side that I talk about, making sure that I got it right. I did a ton of research for this book. So it wasn't just, I'm mean, gonna sit down and write my impressions and my gauzy memories. It was very rigorously interrogated, the facts, the perspectives of different people, checking in with everyone. That's why I think why it took such a long time to write.
0: And how long, how long did it take you to write? Uh, it took about
1: seven years. That... so now I work full-time doing all sorts of other things and I was a mom you know uh, raising two children uh, my older son autistic and my younger son had special needs as well so I was doing a lot of other things this isn't full-time work I would go months without working on it but it was from the conception to the submitting the final draft to my publisher was seven years
0: and you know your 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 book actually uses a lot of um you know material from your father's own writing I I I'm not sure if it's every chapter, but, you know, virtually every chapter has, yep. or, you know, or throughout chapters, yep. you are using source material that comes directly from your father and, yep. you, you know, using it to um, as a kind of a filter or as a jumping off point for part of your conversation. Your book is threaded with so many literary and cultural touchstones that that you use to sort of assess and and, and um, you know, decode your relationship with your dad. And it really ranges. It's Mr. Darcy. It's the Scarecrow and the Wizard of Oz. Johnny, yeah. <laughs> the father in a tree grows in Brooklyn, which I love because I love that book. And I'm, I'm, I would oh. love for you to share with our listeners why you chose to use these sort of literary and cultural figures to help you better understand and, and maybe, ex- you know, ultimately accept your father as flawed and human, but also truly cement your affection for him.
1: Yes. Oh, thank you for asking about the characters. That was one of the most fun parts of the book. Um, I originally had a list, Katie, of about 70 or 80 characters. And um, I ended a lot of them ended up on the cutting room floor. I didn't end up actually writing them out in full and they ended up sort of. So in the beginning of the book, I have a a little list of the characters and it says, I think it ended up being 40 characters in search of my father. And that's a play on Pirandello's play, Six Characters in Search of an Author, uh, which was a play that my father taught the day that I came to visit Yale. Um, My father was a very high, low and middle type of person. You might think, oh, he's this like august, eminent, illustrious theater critic who writes about Brecht and Beckett and Pirandello. But he also watch the Jeffersons every day, watch Murder, She Wrote with Me, loved (laughs) sentimental musicals. I mean, I wouldn't even call them sentimental, moving, poignant musicals, right? And so I think that, and as I I used to be, I was an English professor at Yale and at Vassar, and uh, I did a lot of theater growing up. And I'm somebody who feels that we encounter versions of people in our real lives in art, and in television and in in on in theater, on the stage. Uh, and we can understand the people in our real lives a bit better by thinking about them in relationship to these characters. And we also come to the characters with our sense of people from our real lives. So I think it works both ways. Um, but it definitely helped me to understand and represent my father better. For example, Johnny in A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. That was one of the hardest parts to write, Katie, because it's so... I mean, it's a killer, right? I mean, it's just so poignant. Johnny, you know, the charismatic, adoring father of, of Francie, uh, and but he's an alcoholic and he dies of TB and alcoholism at a young age. And so that sense of someone who's magical and um, gifted and creative and loving, but doomed in some way. And my father died of lung cancer. He was addicted to cigarettes. He was self-medicating with cigarettes for depression so Johnny allowed me to capture that sense of my father's playfulness and creativity and love for his daughter, but also my feeling from when I was a very little girl, Katie, that my father would die of addiction. And I just always had that feeling, even though no one in the family had, had cancer, are incredible genes on both sides in my family. I just always felt the compulsiveness of my father smoking, and I feared that something terrible would happen to him the way Francie does with Johnny.
0: Crystal, so I want to. That's such a, a heavy load to bear, and that's sort of a theme in the book. When we come back from this break, I want to explore the, the fear that you had about your father's health and well being. We've all seen red light facial masks all over Instagram and beauty spas and dermatologists' offices. But did you know red light technology can also rejuvenate your pelvic floor, not just your face? As we age and lose estrogen, our skin, vagina, and intimate tissues get dry. The result? painful sex, more UTIs, and increased bladder leakage. I've experienced all three. And let me tell you, they are zero fun. And it doesn't have to be this way. Meet JoyLux, a sexual health and wellness company founded by women for women. JoyLux offers a red light home use device called VFit to rejuvenate your pelvic floor. This revolutionary device promotes vaginal wellness, natural lubrication, improves strength and sensation, and increases confidence, all from the privacy of home at a fraction of the cost of in-office options. Get your confidence back. Reconnect with your partner. Take charge of your intimate health. Who doesn't want easy-to-use at-home care? Sign me up and spread the word. JoyLux has an exclusive code for certain age listeners. Take $50 off the VFit with code KD50. That's K-A-T-I-E 5-0 for $50 off. Head to joylux.com for the love of your V. Priscilla, we're back. You shared um, that you had fear when you were younger about your father's health. Um, he you know, was a, a chain smoker. He struggled with depression. In the book, you reveal that there were bouts of self-doubt. He he had some reduced economic circumstances after your parents' divorce, you know, when economics changed, and that you worried about him. And you worried about his mental well-being and his overall health. It's a through line of the book. You just shared that it, it was a major theme in your life. I'm curious, now that he's gone, has this absence of the fear around his, his health and well being reshaped your life in any way?
1: Ooh, that's a fantastic question, Katie. <laughs> uh, I love that. What a great question. Um, yeah, you know, and I feared um, for his mental stability. You know, he, I, I write in the book that shortly after my mother announced that she wanted to split from my father and he did not want it. Um, He was absolutely devastated. He was very in love with my mother um, and did not want to lose the family in his daily life. He told me that if it weren't for me and my sister, he might kill himself. So I feared about that as well. And I grew up from a very young age feeling that it was my responsibility and my duty really to buoy him, um, to cheer him up, to be in a sense his Prozac. Uh, to keep him from smoking or drinking too much. Um, Although that was sort of futile. All of us kids tried to stop him and he would get very angry at us when we would try to get him to quit. You know, that's such a great question that you're asking because I think, and if you remember, I write in the later part of the book about how after he died, I had a series of, I wouldn't describe them necessarily as relationships, but entanglements, attachments to, and a few relationships with men who struggled with depression, Substance abuse, anger, insecurity, all these things. So in a way, it's very sad. You would think, oh, my father is, is, is gone. It's devastating. I'm going to mourn him. But now I don't have that burden of that worry. But I actually knowingly took on that burden of worry with a series of men in my life. Because in a way, that's what I had been trained to think that love was. Right. Was me being the person who when I walked into a room, that person would feel better and that person would say to me. Oh, if it weren't for you, you know, I would be so worried and you cheer me up and you do this. And that felt good because I missed being able to be that for my father. And I felt that I had not been able to save my father, but maybe I could save some of these other people.
0: That is um, so powerful, and, and and being somebody's Prozac is uh, such a, a, a you know a burden. And and I, I hear what you're yeah. saying about how you were um, sort of trained to look for love in a familiar way, you know, and mm-hmm. that you, that mm-hmm. you felt that you could make a difference for somebody, and that you yes. could. You could bully them up in ways. And I know a little bit you you talk in the book about doing some therapy. was that what allowed you, and or is it still an evolution? you know, are you still working on on um, shifting how you see your romance and support and and, and, and how you want to be in the world? Now that you don't have to be this for your dad, is it is it yeah. getting easier? Or is it still an evolution? And by the way, it's like I'm only 53. Like I hope I'm still growing and changing and evolving. So you you may not be through the other side yet, but I'm just curious about you know has it has the process of writing this book and sort of seeing this so yes. clearly, clearly for yourself made a difference? Absolutely,
1: um, Katie. You are I so feel what you're asking, and I I just so appreciate it. I think with everything in life, we're always evolving. We're never going to get to the other side and be completely healed, fixed, cured, et cetera. And we wouldn't want to, right? But I certainly do feel that when I started working on the book, I extricated from a relationship that was very dysfunctional in the way that I just described. And it was almost like as soon as I started looking at my relationship with my father in a lot of depth and, you know, I've been in therapy most of my adult life off and on, uh, but there was a certain perspective that writing about it and going back into it in detail enabled me to see I can't be in this relationship anymore and since then um I'm not I'm not dating anyone now um I haven't been in a connection or an attachment like that in about six or seven years so I think I'm doing a lot better uh and I and I would say that when I date people if If at the beginning of it, I sort of sense like something that used to be seductive to me, like someone saying, oh, you know, I used to drink a lot, but now that I've met you or I'm starting to date you, I'm not going to need to drink anymore. And that would make me feel a little worried, but also sort of good. Now, if someone said that I'd be like, Lovely dinner. Have a nice life. <laughs> you
0: know, I mean, that sounds like a very positive evolution. I,
1: <laughs> yes. Priscilla, I also lo-
0: I love something that you shared a little bit earlier, which, which is that we all have different versions of ourselves. You know that that, that there is yeah. a sort of evolution, and I, as I just said, like I I am not the person I was a few years ago, and I, I don't anticipate. You know, we 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 are constantly evolving, and I, I'm wondering a little bit about this sort of understanding of our parents, and is this. Is this a life's work? You know, And I'm thinking specifically now about your mom, because you mm-hmm. shared in the book at different points, and when you were young, and you alluded to this as well, that you were enchanted by your father. He was a magic maker. He was mm-hmm. um, somebody that had so much joy in life, and, and he, he, he created this for you and your siblings.
1: Um, mm-hmm.
0: But you also, at a young age, perceived his power. You saw how he was in the world, and there was sort of deference and and excitement around, you know, people would come up to you in the Broadway theater when they saw him. Yes. Um, and when you, when, when your parents' marriage ended, you were at the age where you were surprised that your mom didn't maybe have the same level of enchantment. And, and in the book that you share, at some point that you realized that um, she must have also, it was hard for her as an adult yes. maybe to manage yes. His, yes. his depression and struggle. And so- mm-hmm you know, is it, can we ever truly understand our parents? Because we are, the distance that we have from them, everything changes. I don't know. I'm, I'm not even a- asking a very good question. So I'm hoping, oh, I'm hoping are. that, I'm hoping you're going to pick the ball up and run with it, Priscilla. But, oh, you know. I am,
1: I am. I'm going to do it, guys. good. Good. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, It's, I I would never really want to ever get to a point where I say, I get my father. I've mastered him. I understand him completely. I've pinned him down, labeled him. You remember how I talk in the book about how he was very resistant to the idea of categorizing people or works of art, labeling them, reducing them to one thing or another. And I certainly wanted, even as I was depicting him and representing him and attempting to capture him on the page for people who didn't know him also constantly gesturing towards the aspects of him that exceed my ability to represent them, right? This kind of, his own memoir was called Faith, Sex, Mystery. Wow, what a title. (laughs) Uh, And it came out when I was in high school, no less. Um, Faith, Sex, Mystery, right? And mystery was extremely important to him. So I wouldn't want to, I say at one point, ever resolve my father into one thing or another or solve the mystery of my father, Um, I want that sort of, you know, you remember my book is structured in terms of acts. I wanted to sort of nod to theatricality, and I have five acts with a prologue, and then I have an epilogue, and the epigraph to the epilogue is a line from my father, something mysterious spills over, and that's from his memoir, and, uh, you know, I want to do that with my dad, and certainly in terms of my mom, you know, my relationship with my mom, I, I, part of what I do in the book is show sort of the evolution of my understanding of my mom and, you know, realizing how hard it was for her. And I think even as a little girl, part of, even before my parents split up, uh, I sensed that my mother didn't love my father the way I did, that she wasn't able to make him feel as happy as I was. And so I almost, it wasn't just that I was protecting my father, I was protecting my mother By going in and taking care of him because I was like, oh, my gosh, um, I can see that, you know, she has to work really hard and she doesn't really want to deal with him, his kind of down mood right now. So I'll go in and I'll take care of him and I'll make it okay for him. Right. So, um, yeah. And my and my mom, um, you know, over the course of the book, I find out all of the stuff about why she married my father and how she had been heartbroken before she married my father. And I think coming to understand my mother's choices and my mother's struggle and my mother's suffering in her marriage to my father, she was never in love with my father. And, you know, there was one review that was so odd and it was talking about how it was so terrible that my mother had told me that she was never in love with my father. And I I was that was helpful information for me. In other words, I didn't think oh my God, this is so awful that my I knew my mother wasn't in love with my father when I knew her. Um, But it was helpful for me to understand my mother is a human being. She's not just my mother. She's a human being in the world with her own history of heartbreak and loss. She had had her heart broken before she met my father. And it gave me a greater compassion for her and understanding of what happened. With my father in their marriage.
0: That makes so much sense to me. And I and I, I disagree with that uh, reviewer whoever said that. <laughs> that you shouldn't yeah. have been told. I mean, I think that there I, I feel that kids are so smart and intuit so many things that yeah. you know, we're we're so wise at such a young age. And yes. especially about the dynamics that occur in our own home. And my own parents separated when I um my daughter's twenty-two when she was twenty-one. And I remember my mom saying, "This is going to come as a big surprise, but um, we're separating." And I'm like, "I'm surprised that you think I'm surprised." You know, <laughs> like, like, that's the only surprise here. And I love my mother, and you know, and I think that they, my parents, um, really centered their children and as, as the, the sort of core of the family, and they were together to, um, you know, in their mind to to you know be the nucleus for us. But you yes. Know, and so maybe they thought that they were keeping this from us, that that you know, was sort of the reason they're together. And you know, kids are very, very knowing. Um, yes. and, and we're, we're, we're on to things. And, and that's why, you, to me, it was so interesting. Your book is very specifically about your personal father-daughter relationship and, and your very unique father. But as I said, when I was reading it, it made me think about my own parents. And and I think that's really the hallmark of such a powerful, well-told story, that the reader can mm. see themselves in the pages, even if the book is ostensibly about something else entirely. And um, I, yeah. I, I, I found myself nodding throughout and just having oh. insights based on just my own circumstances, even though my life is different than yours. And I'm wondering for a listener right now who has not yet read the book, and I'm, I'm going to really encourage you, if you're... Uh, if you like amazing writing, if you want to, it's it's really like it's sort of like a a romp through like the literary world of of, of America. And it's so this this book is so many things. It's a powerful memoir about family. It's a it's a great excavation of a of a snapshot of New York's history. But for a listener right now who is thinking, so much of what Priscilla said is making me think about my own family and and my sort of evolution of the understanding of my relationship. What might be a prompt or an idea you could offer to a listener now that might help them, you know, better reckon with their own legacy?
1: I think it, I'm so everything you said is so gratifying, Katie, because that's exactly what I was hoping to do with the book is that I, I really do think my father obviously a very idiosyncratic. Um, you know, the more I researched his life and read about him. Wow. I mean, he's. You know, he ends up married to a Japanese woman and living in Kyoto from being a first generation Brooklyn immigrant in Flatbush. I mean, it's fascinating. But it really is a universal story in the sense that all of us at some point in our lives have to reckon with the fact that our parents are not, um, you know, we have them on a pedestal uh, or we see them as all powerful and we see them only in in terms of their relationship to us, right? They are our parents and that's how we relate to them learning to see your parent as a complicated human with his or her own history, his or her own family that they grew up in, right? His or her own losses, um, sufferings, struggles, triumphs, all of those things. I think really can bring peace. And whether you have a fraught relationship with a parent or, you know, an incredibly adoring one when you're little, that relationship is con- continually going to evolve and I think it shaped me in so many ways in terms of my career choices. My romantic choices, how I was as a parent to my own children. And I can't emphasize enough how helpful looking at that relationship was for me in terms of growing in all those areas.
0: This is such a great segue into something that I wanted to ask you about. I mean, I know you you shared that you were an academic, that you taught at Yale and Vassar, you have a PhD, but you did at some point make a major pivot in your career and, you know, switch lanes, you're, you're doing different work now. And you're obviously a writer, you've written uh, two memoirs to date, and there's probably more in you. Um, w- yeah. You know, walk us through a little bit about um, your decision to leave academia. You know, what role, if any, did your relationship with your father play in that or, or not? And what helped you say, yes, I'm ready to make this leap? Because leaping is scary
1: leaping is scary. And I've leaped a lot, actually, Katie. So I, um, I went into, I wanted to be an actress and a singer when I was young and, and were a writer. Those are the things I wanted to do. And my parents, um, my mom, literary agent for everybody from Toni Morrison to Joan Didion to Michael Crichton and Rice, right. All the, and I grew up with these people and they were my parents' close friends. And my dad taught actors at Yale drama school. And they were like, no, you're not doing those things." And I was very dutiful. And it was one of the few things that they agreed on. And in giving up acting and singing when I went to Yale as an undergraduate, because I had done some like off-Broadway stuff when I was a little kid and I was in a lot of musical theater when I was in high school, um, I could please both of my parents. And that was a rare thing. And going into a Ph.D. program straight out of undergraduate, they were both over the moon about that. And it was one of the few things that I would hear them discussing in a reasonably polite, supportive tone of voice with each other. And I think I felt at that time that I needed a career that was going to enable me to be more involved with my two children. My younger son uh, is dyslexic and dysgraphic and Benjamin, my older son, is autistic. And they were both in special education, Benj all the way through uh, high school and James through um, to high school. And I went to work at my mother's literary agency and I worked there for five years as an agent and I really liked a lot of it. Um, I liked editing people's work. I liked being an advocate for literary fiction and for meaningful nonfiction that I found um, a kinship with. The first book that I represented was actually a book by Danielle Padilla Peralta who's now an eminent classic scholar at Princeton. And he, it was a memoir called Undocumented. He was an illegal alien from the, from the Dominican Republic. Um, And the second book was called Dreams from the Monster Factory by a woman who runs a restorative justice program in the prisons of San Francisco. So I really loved that. And it was just a very different way um, of thinking about writing and not writing for 10 people, right? But writing in academia. Uh, And then my first book came out. And when my book came out, which was sold while I was an agent by my friend who was working as an agent at my mother's agency, Uh, I just this whole new world opened up to me of being an advocate. So I've done tons of speaking about educate at schools and all over at conferences about autism and education and special education and the arts. And I became a book critic and I started running book groups and I teach book groups in New York City and I teach literature classes for Yale Alumni College. And I'm a book critic for the Boston Globe. And I do speaking. And then I got certified as a meditation teacher, Katie. (laughs) So, you know, it's all about continually evolving, as my mother would say, you know, adding, um, you know, arrows to the quiver, um, just having a rich, interesting life where I've got, I'm doing a different thing every day. And yes, I hopefully have many more books in me, although it's hard to fit in time for writing my own work when I'm doing so much teaching. Uh, But I will. I will. And I want to write children's books one day, too. Uh,
0: I love this portfolio career that you've created for yourself, because, you know, we we can often, what what I remember coming out of college, you know, it was an era where people got slotted in a lane, you know, yes. where you, you were doing one thing and it was very hard to switch lanes. And a big theme of this show is that um, this is what we get to do in midlife. You know, we, yes. we, we get to the point where we have so much different, uh, you know, experience and lived wisdom and interests that change and morph. And I love that you're exploring them in all these different ways. I would love to see you write a children's book.
1: Oh yay! <laughs> I will do it. I will do it. One I day. have
0: young nieces and nephews in my uh, in my family, and uh, we just have boxes and boxes and boxes of, of, of books that we've um, you know bought through the years for our three children. Um, so this is oh. actually my last question for you that I had before we move into our speed lane, and, and, and because we're talking about children, this seems like a good transition. I know you have two kids of your own. Um, If one of them were to write a memoir about you one day, you know, and what do you think that they might share, especially if they were to read The Critic's Daughter and and, and see your, um, you know, sort of excavation about love and identity and parenting and forgiveness, you know, how do you think that work that you've been doing in the latter part of your life to date would shape what they
1: might write about? Oh, someone asked me this question, actually never been asked this question before at an event I did in Connecticut this past weekend. And my younger son was in the audience and he looked absolutely aghast and waved his (laughs) arms in the air like, no, I'm never going to do that. (laughs) Um, And uh, and my older son, who is um, my autistic son, who graduated from Vassar top of his class and is going to go and get a PhD in computer science and is a musician, would never, ever do it either. So it's I don't eat. Neither of my kids will. Ever do it. I, I I can be sure of that. Um, my niece might do it. My niece is more of a writer type. Um, but I think that they would, if anyone, if any of them ever did it, you know, there's so much material, my gosh, for them to use. Talk about my dad um threading, you know, threading my dad's work through my book. Um my dad only wrote one memoir. I've written so many memoir pieces in addition to my memoir books. <laughs> So uh, I, but I, I really, I, I, you know, the answer really is that neither of my kids would ever. I am so certain of, like, more certain of that than almost anything I'm certain of. I, I,
0: I love this image of your son waving <laughs> his hands like in protest, like, no, yes, yes. no, don't do it, mom. I'm not yeah, doing yeah. that, mom. It's hysterical. No. But you know, but we look at it. We look at our own children, and you know, I, I've made I've made conscious choices about the way I raise my children that are in juxtaposition to the way I was raised. You know. Uh, Priscilla, you and I both went to small, you know, private girls schools in Manhattan, which are very expensive. You know, I my husband and I deliberately moved ourselves out of that kind of rarefied space because, one, it was very, you know, it was sort of unaffordable. And we wanted to choose to yep. have more freedom and just sort of more of expansive worldview. And so, you know, we we make choices. And we I've given our kids um, a lot of running room and a lot of freedom to sort of explore the world. My daughter did a gap year after college oh. and is now um she goes to university abroad in Scotland and she's you know moving to Australia when she graduates to Katie, to work. I love and, this.
1: You know, and Katie, so yeah. gap years are very important. Both of my kids did gap years before they started college. Yeah,
0: it's 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 so it's so um it, it was wonderful for her. It was the right choice. I don't know if you know my my second didn't do it and I, I don't know about my third, but you know I think that you know my father who I love and adore endlessly, you know, he uh, is uncomfortable with um adventure you know and uh mm. would definitely did not encourage that so sometimes we 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 choose to make choices that are in direct contrast to how uh our experiences are so i'm always just sort of curious you know as to you know whether or not you know what your children might think about your own work and cetera. so this <laughs> yeah. but i but we're going to end with a visual of your son waving his hands going not for me mom not for me mom <laughs> um this no, has been no. such a treat priscilla i could talk uh, to you all day long we're going to Wrap with our speed round, though, because our time does end, which is sad. But for people who want more of um, Priscilla's beautiful thinking and writing and just this kind of interesting excavation and also just a wonderful, wonderful snapshot of New York uh, during a particular slice in history, The Critic's Daughter is something that you should be adding to cart. You can do it wherever you find books. I I like bookshop.org. Uh, mm-hmm. Which is a online, um, you know, uh, sort of collection of independent bookstores. But wherever you buy it, make sure that you write a review because I know reviews matter. All right, that's they my sa- that- <laughs> that's my sales pitch. But we're moving into our quick speed round. So this Yay, is just I'm excited. One I'm excited. or two word answer. So okay, uh, writing the critic's daughter was grueling. Grueling. We like honest answers. Uh, <laughs> yes. How How might your father review this book?
1: Oh, rhapsodically.
0: Nice. Uh, a writer that you think gets the complex parent-child relationship right?
1: Danny Shapiro.
0: Nice. Okay. A favorite memoir that you've read recently? I'm sure you have many.
1: Favorite memoir that I've read recently? Wow. That's a hard... Uh... Will Schwalbe, We Should Not Be Friends. Oh, you are the second person
0: to recommend that to me recently. So that is going in the show notes and I am adding to cart.
1: Oh, good. Although
0: um, my mother is a librarian, so I could also check it out of, a, out of my local library. Uh, <laughs> so something that you let go of in midlife. it's
1: hmm. a hard one. Something that I let go of. Um, my my attachment to difficult men. (laughs) Let's just just say that.
0: I love it. I love it. Okay. Finally, your one word answer to complete the sentence, as I age, I feel. Wise. Nice. Thank you, Priscilla. This has been so incredibly fun. Before we say goodbye, though, how can our listeners find you, your writing and your books?
1: Uh, my website is my name, PriscillaGilman.com, 1L and Gilman. Uh, I'm on Instagram, Priscilla Gilman, Twitter. I was the first Priscilla Gilman to get on all these places. So <laughs> it's pretty easy. Uh, Facebook, it's Priscilla Gilman Author. And uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.
0: Love it. All right. Thank you, Patricia. This wraps A Certain Age, a show for women who are aging without apology. Thank you to everyone who has taken the time to write an Apple podcast review. I see and appreciate you. Reviews really do matter since they help other women find the show. Special thanks to Michael Mancini who composed and produced our theme music. See you next time. And until then, age boldly, beauties.